0: Hi everybody thanks for joining us for another episode of tech strong women where we feature amazing women doing amazing things in tech i'm jody ashley i'm here with my co-host tracy reagan hey tracy what's on your mind today so it has finally happened um Uh we've been talking about broadband
1: for quite some time and broadband in rural areas. The Biden administration is going to set, spend $42 billion divided across all the states and territories to provide broadband to areas that don't currently have it. Which, uh, living in Santa Fe and knowing people in rural areas that don't have broadband, I saw what they went through during COVID. Their kids suffered terribly because they would have to go to somebody's house to actually. Um, do homework or be part of the pod that they were working on. It is such a critical part of diversity, to be quite, quite honest, because it equalizes us if we all have access to something as simple as broadband, but not everybody does. And I think a lot of us forget that. And you can they, they have a, a site now. You can go to um, FCC.gov slash broadband data. And you can put your address in and correct it if it's wrong. So if they think you have broadband and you don't, make sure and let them know because that's where the money is going to be applied. So really important step was part of the infrastructure bill. So, you know, anybody listening to this, please don't say, how is it going to be paid for? (laughs) It was paid for through the infrastructure bill. And now they've announced um, the exact amount of money that they're going to be spending and how it's going to be distributed. And every single one of you can be part of it by going out to that map and identifying if you don't have broadband and it indicates that you do. So I am so relieved for some of the folks that I live around that have needed this for years and years and years. We have had people come, I've had people come up to our house just to do something as simple as filing for unemployment um, because they had no access to broadband. (laughs) that's so crazy. We are here. We are starting to enter into the real 21st century and I'm
0: very excited about it. That it that is like so exciting and so needed. So, so I mean, I think that's just another thing that the pandemic popped right out. We knew it was there, but boy, that really shined a light on how bad it is and and what the problem that needs to be corrected. So that's yeah. that's really good. Well, as always, you always have a great little tidbit for us, a little gem. (laughs) All right. Well, I would like to introduce all of you to today's guest, Karen Worstel. It's Worstel, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Karen, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to. Sure.
2: Well, I've been uh, in the cybersecurity industry for a long time. I kind of uh, got started in grad school back in the 1980s. So I've been in this really incredible place to work, um, field to work, and watched it grow uh, over the years, and I um, think it's really probably the best place we could possibly be. Today, I serve as uh, the Senior Cybersecurity Strategist at VMware, and i very excited to be able to work with Chief Information Security Officers and their teams and um, mentor CISOs and, and so forth as far as they they're making the best out of their career. So,
1: We've arrived, right? Security <laughs> is now something that everybody's talking about. Finally, don't
2: <laughs> you, you know? I, know used to to I, I, <laughs> I used to have to clip. I I used to search the newspapers and search the magazines and look and look and look for an article about cybersecurity that I could use in a presentation. Um, you know, that was probably twenty five years ago. But yeah, now you can't turn around without something seeing something about it.
1: So I have to ask you this question, you know, cybersecurity has turned into a supply chain discussion. Personally, I think it belittles cybersecurity to re, re, try to reposition it around it being supply chain issues. And I'm talking about in source code and, and in open source, mm-hmm. because I feel like it's a security issue, not a supply chain. When I think of supply chain, I think of you can't get me my product fast enough. Yeah we've been delivering, software developers have been delivering product quite fast. We just may not know what we're delivering always. (laughs) We may not understand all the parts and pieces. And so that's why they call it a supply chain issue. Um, How do you feel about that kind of pulling away from the security conversation?
2: Well, over the years, it's, it's sort of been the topic of the year. You know what I'm saying? We we, as people, as more and more people kind of wrap their arms around cybersecurity, and all of a sudden they see, oh gosh, we have a supply chain issue, or oh my gosh, it's a ransomware problem, or something like that. We tend to get very hyper focused on a particular area. Um, and it's one of the reasons I like to talk about something I've been preaching for a long time, which I call demonstrating due diligence to a defensible standard of care. And that means you do the right thing, right? So you, you recognize that you have a duty of care to the constituents that you are for whose information you might be holding or the services that you provide and that you take the reasonable steps necessary from their point of view for protecting your information or protecting their the information that you hold on behalf of others. So I like to kind of I I am still trying to bring us back to center sometimes in the conversation. I agree with you that when we get hyper focused on any one area, we lose the big picture. And if anything, cybersecurity is a big picture conversation. So
1: yeah, that boy, that just that that really uh, brings it home because (laughs) if we do get, especially software developers, which I consider myself a member of, we love the shiny new objects. we are like watching a bunch of three, you know, four or five-year-olds play soccer, ball, ball, ball.
2: <laughs> yeah. But the whole team follows the ball around the field.
1: Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right now a supply chain, but it, 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 if we do get too focused, we are missing the big picture, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've, some of the things that we have to deal with, we've talked about for a long time. I'm also a big fan of talking about technical debt and, um, I heard a great uh, line a couple of weeks ago that ransomware criminals are technical debt collectors. And any time that we ship or we we build or we chase the next bright, shiny thing and we don't clean up after ourselves and pay attention to the details to the point where they're done, done instead of just kind of done. Then we accumulate technical debt. And McKinsey came out with an article recently that said it's about 40% of the IT balance sheet in large companies and is affecting their ability to do digital transformation because of the accumulated technical debt there. But it is it is a security problem. It's I I almost want to call technical debt and security debt the same thing. Um,
1: um, yeah, I would that I mean, from what I see in terms of let's just talk about the software factory or the CICB pipeline. There's a lot of technical debt there that it has to be replaced. It ha- we're at a point where it, it's gotta be disrupted to get to the next level, but it holds us back because we've invested so much in it, even though it may not be the best solution for us today.
2: Right.
1: right. So how yeah. do you get over that? How do, When you talk to customers, how do you talk to them about moving beyond that technical debt or you know, cleaning up, taking out the garbage, how do you, how do you present that to them?
2: Well, I have some experience with this and having done this in past roles, but, um, and McKinsey talks about this in in an article and I'll, I'll share it so you can put it in your show notes.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so people can take a look at it because if you just basically think of technical debt as security debt, and then look at the way they talk about how to deal with it, I think we can, we can learn a lot from that. And, and, One of the things that they talk about absolutely has to be in place is that the tone at the top, the governance of this, the the commitment of executive management to bear the tax that is going to take on every new project in order to address the technical debt. Even if I try to do a digital transformation project and I want it to be successful, I must address the technical debt that gets in its way. One of the things McKinsey suggests is that we apply something like a 20% technical debt tax to new projects. Number one, it makes us really think about the project that we're about to undertake and what's involved in making it successful. But it also, by necessity, engages the business in the conversation about their appetite for the next new thing and making sure that we don't keep repeating this mistake and adding to the pile that we, we say it's going, it's important to fix this. We're going to fix it as we move forward. So we're not just doing one or the other, we're doing both, but we're doing it in a way that's, that's smart and recognizes that you can't continue. I use an, I use the metaphor of cleaning one's room, right? You can't live in a, in a room or a house for 20 years and never, Clean it, but well, that's kind shouldn't. of what we
0: do. You shouldn't. <laughs> well, maybe some somebody does, of, some right? but it's not a place that anybody it. wants no, to live. Absolutely, it's yeah. just miserable, <laughs> right?
2: Right? Yeah. So it's kind of like that with IT, yes. and 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 it's not just IT, it's not just the IT organization's problem; it's the entire company's problem. So it's a uh, it takes some um, some governance with some real teeth. To, to make it work. But I will say that when it is addressed, it has the potential of putting a company on the fast track to being able to implement the things that are new and to be able to take advantage of the technology opportunity that moves their business forward. Um, and my experience was when we addressed the, tech, the security debt that we had accumulated in a, in a past company um, in a very deliberate sort of way, we started deploying defect-free code. We, our break-fix went away. Um, you know, We went from a 7911 outage call six days a week for two hours to none. Um, that kind of thing costs money, and we don't actually really always quantify it in a way that makes a compelling case. But I think we would have paid back. I think I spent about $10 million in 10 months for that project. But we would have made it all back within 18 months um, if, you know, we'd had that opportunity. So I, I, it's it's something that I think is not just a tax. It's not just a hardship. It's not just a, oh, my gosh, this is drudgery and I have to do this. When you see what it does for your business and the ability to move forward, it's very exciting. So I'm hoping that more people will embrace that. Who
1: carries that? Who, who leads the charge on that? So mm. Who is the person who should be out there? Is it CISO who should be out there saying, we've got technical debt, we've got a clean house? Who Who is the best candidate in an organization to lead that conversation? I'm mean, Obviously, a, a, CEO or a CTO would be great, but sometimes mm-hmm. they don't understand it.
2: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And uh, in light of the recent developments around CISOs and their roles, um, it's a very pertinent question this is not a CISO problem, but it's not a CISO problem. It is a risk management problem. And it needs to be something that is assessed and reported, you know, quantified and, and, and reported on to the board of directors. And then the board of directors has to basically say, you know, this is the risk tolerance we have for this sort of a problem. Help Help drive the strategy that says this is what we need to change um, and we're going to keep an eye on it and they're going to monitor it and then it's up to the c-suite to implement that and the c and the, of course the CISO would be a part of that but right. to to box it into it it has to be part of every business de- units decision they they have to say this is how we're going to run the business this is what our appetite looks like for new technology and the next bright, shiny thing, Are we go, how are we going to make sure that we do this in a way that pays attention to the risk and to the best possible outcomes for the company? I
1: like that reframing it as a risk management problem. It's obvious, but sometimes the most obvious things are the hardest things to see. <laughs> It is truly a risk management. Security is a risk management problem. Do they want to? Do they? Are they willing to take on risk? Right, and that becomes the question: Is the risk worth it, or do well, we want to tighten up the ship?
2: Do they even know what the risk is? I think <laughs> is the first question that we have to, um, you know, have to address. And and my favorite case study of that, which which is the one I kind of lived through. Was when AT&T Wireless, in in a former life, it, it's gone through multiple iterations as a company, so it's not the same AT&T that you have today. But AT&T Wireless, before it was purchased by Singular, um, was a standalone company and was the largest self provider company in the world um, in terms of customers. And you know, it had everything. We had everything going for us, except we had accumulated technical debt to the degree that when it came time to implement a new CRM system, they tried once and it failed. So they were in the second try at it. It had been in place, I think, for 18 months, but that project by the time I got there. Um, and I'll never forget this on Halloween, they were supposed to come up, That the system was supposed to come up. And, and if you don't know, a, a CRM system is the heartbeat of a mobile telephone company. It's how they activate the phones. No CRM, no phone activation. So they decide to do this before the buying season, the biggest buying season of the year. <laughs> they go to bring it up on Halloween and it doesn't come up and it doesn't come up that day and it doesn't come up that week and it doesn't come up that mm-hmm. month. And we lost $350 million in one calendar quarter.
1: A month. I mean, a month. No, you're... no, it
2: was way, it, it didn't really, it was on its knees, but we had a war room running 24 seven just to try to keep the thing running, fully staffed with developers, with senior management. Uh, We were all in there, like, (laughs) just to make sure that the transactions that were coming through got completed. And that that lasted from Halloween through Easter.
1: Oh, Oh what a nightmare. I think Southwest Airlines
2: may have experienced a little problem with technical yeah. debt. <laughs> yeah, it's starting to become a conversation. It's yes. you're, We're going to see it just like security. You're going to start to see it be talked about more and more as more people become aware of it. But as I asked you the first question, you kind
1: of bring it all the way up to don't get focused on a certain area. It's all a risk management discussion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I feel like if we keep pulling it for, you know, for developers, for project leads, for project managers, directors, VPs, if we keep bringing it back to a discussion about risk management, how much risk are you willing to take and what do you want to do to change that? It it changes the conversation in, I think, a very productive way.
2: I think we have to do a better job in order for that conversation to be really productive and to take hold. I think it, it behooves us to figure out a way to talk about it because it doesn't help a ton for me to walk into a room full of executives and say, what's your risk appetite? Because (laughs) it's like, uh, how do I, how do I even begin to answer that question? But if I walk into a healthcare provider and I say, you need to answer this question definitively, are you willing to tolerate a 50% loss of patient records? The answer is going to be no, right? So, so tell me if your if you're if your risk tolerance is, I need ninety nine point nine 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 percent protection of the confidentiality, availability, and integrity of patient records. Then I know what to do. You see what I'm saying? Yes. That yeah. I have to have a way to translate that risk appetite. Into something actionable that I can design and implement. And a really great example of this, Jamal Farshi just released the copy of the control framework that Equifax has been has spent the last four years putting together. Boy, did they have an embarrassing moment in time? <laughs> right, but that was a risk, that was a risk management situation. Right, yes. so so obviously they've taken that to heart and they've decided to do something about it, and they have re- shared with the world on LinkedIn, actually, their all their um, control framework. And really, yeah, you I download a copy. it's quite eye-opening because it includes things like change control and configuration management and all the things that we that would get buried under the blanket of uh hygiene. It's IT hygiene, like just good, solid IT management practices. And um, yeah, it's it's very helpful. So I really encourage people to take it. And to
1: be quite honest, some of those terms like, you know, change management and configuration management, those are terms that you and I recognize, but I don't think a lot of younger developers uh, really have ever even heard those terms. They've That's been terrifying. going so fast. <laughs> They've been going so fast that configuration management has been lost to the term d- DevOps, right? Mm. And we don't even really understand what configuration management really meant. I rem- I, I'm working for a bank. I asked uh, a one of the VPs what he really meant by configuration management. He says, "I I, I want to know every change, even if they're going to put new, st- new paint the parking lot new." And it's going to cause people to come into work late. I want that to be part of my configuration management discussion. He wanted to know every detail because he was very risk averse <laughs> and wanted to plan for any, any, any possible uh, uh, impact. Right.
2: I do understand that actually, um, you know, my mantra was, I, I had a couple, actually I actually have more than two, but <laughs> the two that I said the most was the only bad problem is the one that we're not talking about. Exactly, (laughs) and no surprises. So, if that means you have to come and tell me that we're painting the parking lot, I want to know, right? If it's something that's going to tell me that my team, who's got to run an exercise, can't get in to park, I want to know,
1: right? That was that was how he he framed it, and I and I never forgot that conversation Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: I realized that he himself wasn't getting focused on one particular area. He was looking at it from a much broader perspective, and understanding anything can create risk.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're we're kind of wired in this profession to always look for the thing that goes wrong. And um, and and a, and I realized that about myself rather late in life, that my my primary question, personally speaking, was what do I have to fix today which kind of presupposes the condition that everything is broken. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that is essentially how our profession operates on a day-to-day basis. And if you think about that, the toll that that takes on people, um, and, you know, it's, it's no wonder why there's a bit of a gulf when we're trying to have a conversation with people who are not part of that mindset. Because they're like, I'm thinking about what can I build today? What can I create today? You know, what am I going to make that's amazing today? And what you're talking about is what's broken. There are two different worlds. And um, that's a challenge for us. Because the truth of it is, we do kind of tend to look for what's broken.
1: Yeah, we do. And developers love to jump in and fix it before they even know exactly completely what's broken. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, we can fix it. We can fix it. We'll get
2: to it right away. <laughs> you know, my boss, um, my boss at AT&T Wireless was just, I just learned so much from him. But when we ran those break-fix calls every day, um, the rule he made was you had to come in with a root cause analysis of the thing that broke. And you had to come in with a solution. And very often the solution that would come in was we got a patch from the vendor. We're going to put it in today. And he goes, what does the patch do? Well, I don't know. We got it from the vendor. (laughs) Okay. But that's not the, that's not, you know, we're going to, that's a technical debt issue, actually applying patches that we have no idea what they do. So um, yeah, the I'm not trying to advocate for slowing down uh, the DevOps cycle because I know it's gotten to a speed that is something that you know is a wonder to behold. At the same time, it terrifies me a little bit that you say they don't understand what configuration management and change control and all of that might look like. And, and the truth is it's not the same as it used to be. So we can't just go back to that. But we do have to figure out how we're going to avoid this accumulation of technical back to the technical debt. How we're we going to ac- avoid that when what we're deploying is not completely fully baked? It's if it's going to be a deploy and see what breaks. Um, uh, you're going to have technical debt.
1: That's why we have chaos engineering. Yeah. <laughs> so we learn how to respond quickly. You know, put out the fire as soon as possible. But that yeah. doesn't that in and in a Kubernetes environment environment with microservices, all this gets exploded out. So we yes. are definitely in a place where Absolutely. that DevOps pipeline that you're referring to, the tires are a bit old. Yeah. And the front end needs some alignment. <laughs> and we're going down the freeway at 90 miles an hour and it's wobbling all over the place. And who knows when the next blowout is going to occur. And that is honestly a, a perfect description of where we are in terms of. What we used to talk about configuration management is just moving at this huge speed it's just fast and we've been told to do that for so long and now we really have to look at how we add security in there how we add the human element in there and i know jody wants to talk about this so let's shift to the human element let's okay. talk about <laughs> your concepts around being flame proof and and women in- yeah
0: i want to talk about flame-proof. Take, women know, in tech take and burnout and how <laughs> I think it's really bad right now. I mean, for everybody, but especially since the pandemic, where everybody just sat in front of their computer 24 seven, right? Everyone's trying to find a path back to what's normal look like, right? And we right. see it. Everybody's changing jobs every five minutes. We went through a spell. There it was insane for all last of, all last year. I know they're still going on, but, um, I would love to hear about the coaching and, and training and things. It sounds like from what I've read a bunch, and you're very passionate about it, and I'm very excited to hear what you're doing.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it means a lot to me. Um, the my and just my fundamental reason for why I care about it so deeply is that um, I learned very early in my life that my life is the result of and dependent upon the shoulders, standing on the shoulders of the people who went before me. And for us in this industry, when when I, I was so shocked in 2016, when I saw the number of women leaving the tech industry for good, mm-hmm. that the number had like fallen off a cliff. Every other area of STEM grew, but in, for women it was dropping precipitously. Um, like from 34, 34% of the computing workforce to something like 18. And in, in, since I got my graduate degree, uh, if we're not around to be those shoulders, we are the shoulders. Absolutely. So then the question is, all right, I'm all about self-preservation. If you, you know, I've been through burnout in a big way twice took me, I had to kind of like learn the hard way. Um, And, and it sneaks up on people. So there's no. There's no harm or foul. You know, you can't be judged for having gone through that experience, I would argue, but at the same time, we are very clear about what leads up to it. And for the most part, it's completely preventable. So my goal is to try to help everyone, not just women, but you know, men, we have burnout for different reasons, I think, to some extent, but, try to help men and women stay in the game as long as possible, because we are those shoulders. So it's a bigger thing than just me. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose this job, but at the same time, it's like, I need to think about what a signal, what that signal sends to other people when I'm not here anymore.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Right. So, well, and the
0: signal we send too by never, taking, I think we we're starting to live in this world where you companies aren't saying you have two weeks of vacation. They're saying you have unlimited vacation and nobody wants to use it because they're afraid that they're, you know, we have the exact flip on that front where people don't take it. They don't take a break. They don't have work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And if, if our leaders don't model that, I'm very fortunate to work for a CEO and and a team who's our families and our work life balance is paramount to him. Alan Schimmel is amazing about that for us. And, um, but not everybody is. Some people are just terrified that if they don't just keep pounding away, they're (laughs) not going to be as valued or someone else will be better because they took less time off than they did. And I, I think it's a, there's so many factors, but to me, that seems like one of the, the newer, really big miles to cross for people.
2: We're prisoners of our own mind. Um, and the story in our head. Like I love to Brene Brown, I think is the one who came up with the term. This is what's the story in your head? What's that? <laughs> what's going on in that bubble? Like I see this bubble above your head. What is that saying? Like the cartoon bubble, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: because I'm scary a lot of the
2: time. <laughs> <laughs> so so from a the standpoint of the tech sector and i think many other sectors advertising comes to mind mad men comes to mind right <laughs> where you have the um you know sleep is optional people die in bed don't you know you don't don't, don't go to sleep um <laughs> and the badge of honor that says well i i only need 4 hours of sleep a night or i Um, actually didn't go to bed last night. I've been, and, oh, I did a, I did a, I took two red eyes in a row or whatever the, Mm. whatever the thing is, it it became a thing to kind of brag about it.
0: Yeah.
2: And, um, and it's like, yeah, this is how committed I am. This is how hard I work. And it came, it came out of, a, the excitement to some extent of a growing industry that I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it existed before tech, but in the tech sector, oh my gosh the the energy of doing all of this stuff and wanting to be first and wanting to not miss an opportunity and all of that went with that was so powerful that we kind of and we didn't quite know yet i don't think that creativity works completely differently creativity works in an environment where everyone feels they can bring them be- their best selves to work where they feel like they can contribute um that there's, there's a term people use a lot called psychological safety. I'm not going to be blasted out of the room for sharing my new idea, even if it's kind of bogus (laughs) Um, or might be bogus. I mean, we all think our ideas are a little bit great. And then we think they're horrible, but we go through that cycle, (laughs) but to go back and say um, creativity, the root of creativity and productivity comes from bodies and minds that are rested from bodies and minds that play Mm -hmm. from bodies and minds that are not 100% focused on the task at hand. It's fine to do that with intensity for a period of time, but then take a break. And that's where the, you know, I think the unlimited PTO is a fantastic thing because it's like, I can, if my work style is to get like super intense and in there and work on something, and maybe I just, like do it to the exclusion of everything else for a 40 hour work week or a 50 hour work week. Take a break. Right. Because you've got to give your brain a chance to kind of work for you. Let your subconscious work for you. We know so much more about that now. So part of what I try to do with Flame Proof is to say, look, we have, we know what burnout is. Now World Health Organization has identified it as a syndrome. Yep, We know I think it's really important to ask the question, not what do I do about it, but why does this happen? That's the important question. Mm -hmm. And when we understand the why, and if we're really committed to doing what we need to do to fix that, we will know what we need to do. Um, And I think we have to do a better job of letting go of the fear of you know, the fear of missing out and the fear of somehow just, if I just apply more, more energy and more effort here that somehow I'm going to get the final result and I'm going to get it faster and better. I had, I actually, I'm guilty of that so much myself Mm -hmm. and have been in my career. So I'm not trying to tell people something that says you should be doing this because hello, I did it. So, (laughs) um, but the, the lesson really came home clearly to me when um, I ended up needing surgery. I don't know if you've ever had sinus surgery, but it's like pretty brutal and I needed to have surgery. And when I asked the doctor, I was like, I was in the middle of a big project. I was like, uh, and I couldn't put this off. And I was like, um, so what's it going to be like after. Like, how fast can I go back to work? When can I, he goes, you're going to want to take a couple of weeks off of life.
0: Oh Lord. And I was
2: like, well, nobody's <laughs> <laughs> they were right. It's and so
1: go home for a while. That's hard to do. <laughs> just go
2: home. Don't put an ice pack on your face and don't answer the phone and don't look at any, don't do anything. And yeah. I, and I, when I, <laughs> I was so worried about this because I had major stuff underway, um, and my coach he says I want you to think on one thing. He says, "Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast." Hmm. And I thought, and my first reaction, and I told him this later. I said, "You're crazy." <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that are you nuts? That's nuts. <laughs>
1: But Karen, do you think that women are more? Um, do we burn out faster, or do we just do too many things? Are we just such multitaskers by nature? or Is it is burnout higher amongst women than men?
2: You know, I haven't seen know? any statistics that burnout is higher among women, but I do know that women left the tech in the tech yeah. sector in droves during the pandemic, so that was a self survival choice. And somebody had to take care of the kids at home and right. teach the school.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think when- it's less burn out, just disappear. Like women are more likely to, if they have a second income, like they were the one who, like you said, stayed home, helped get the kids through classes, um, and and did all that kind of multitasking stuff. So it, I was gonna ask the same question. I wonder, I wonder if uh, just because of the roles that women tend to stereotypically have in a household if we don't or maybe we're more resilient they're giving <laughs> to parents caregiving <laughs> to children you know it, uh, I don't know we're pretty resilient we have babies we can yes. take a lot <laughs> yes, we, yes we can <laughs> we can, uh, we can take run, a lot. who runs the world <laughs> yeah, well, yeah exactly I mean I think there's maybe our our, t- our pain tolerance is a lot higher <laughs>
2: Uh, I think we're used to carrying a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, women do multitask. They have to, you can't keep your eye on multiple children. If you have, you know, even if you have one, um, but if you can't keep your eye on what's going on with all of that and what are they doing in school and what are they going to eat and where are we going to live and how, how are they going to get, you know, all of that and work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they, women are often, I think, prone to being the ones who don't leave any time for themselves.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And, yes.
2: and the burnout, the burnout comes from never doing the recharge. Never it, my, my burnout was that. So what my first episode of burnout was, and it was a doozy. Uh, I went to graduate school with two, with a two-year-old and a five-year-old. Oh Lord. Yeah. Um, and finished on time. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, so that, th- and during the pandemic, I think it got to such a degree, it got to such an extreme that women had to choose between work and their children. Absolutely. And that's always going to be almost always going to be a easy choice. I mean, not an easy one, but, a it's always going to come down on the side of raising of your children. Yeah.
0: I didn't um, even realize I didn't realize that I could take care of myself until about a year after I got divorced (laughs) and I'd been married for 15, 16 years. And I was like, wait a minute, I can like go do this, or I can go do that. But then I went through the whole, my kids aren't with me. I, my kids should be with me. I battled the guilt of not being a mom in the moment. And and staying out and having drinks with my friends after work and having that downtime and being, but I should be momming. It took a good long year and a half, two years for me to realize that was okay, but I was okay to be having a good time and happy about that. And I think that's, that's what's hard. And I think downtime, you know, when you talked about getting away, but I think with all the screens and phones, what drives me nuts is like the expectation that, I'm on vacation today and I'm going to answer your email or I'm going to answer, you know, your Slack message. I don't, if, if I'm off, I don't do that. Now, my husband drives me bonkers. Like I'll hide his phone. <laughs> so I'm like, this is our vacation. This is a day off. Nobody's going to die if you don't answer a Slack message. I think that's the thing that people stay tied to all that, even though they should be just taking a break.
1: Yeah. And there was a lot of burnout in, uh, especially in um, SREs, people who were working in the SRE space Mm -hmm. during COVID. They were, they were unsung heroes to keep systems up and running in environments that were remote. And they hadn't had that kind of experience before they had logon issues. They had issues getting into places where they needed to be because they weren't in a, in a physical environment. And I, over the course of that period of time, I spoke to many, many people who are in the SRE business, of which many are women, mm-hmm. who did could they were like, we're done, we're done. Mm-hmm. Too much. Trying to hold up this company and try to hold up the family. It was just too much. Yeah. And, and women leave too because of raising families, but is there a way, uh, are organizations and companies, does the enterprise try to create pathways back in and use transferable skills when they're ready to come back? Is that a focus that enterprises
2: have? Uh, it is at VMware, and so uh, I'm seeing more and more of that, like reentry um, opportunities. And um, yeah, I think I think there are there are companies. I don't know how many of them there are, and mm-hmm. and it's really hard to tell, like a company's policy versus what they really do. Yes. Um, But <laughs> I see it. I see it at VMware. So that really encourages me. I hope that they can continue to set that kind of an example. Um, and and it's one of the reasons I work here because I just believe so much in the way that they treat people. Um, so that's a, that's a big one.
1: There's a lot for women to think about when they just choose to step out. And I would hope that we begin to think that maybe we should talk to somebody before we make that decision.
2: The decision to
1: to leave, to leave industry,
2: mm-hmm. to
1: leave your job because of the of, because of you're not particularly flameproof And maybe it's really hard right now at home and it's hard at work. Uh, mental health, I think, is a discussion that every organization should be having and making sure that individuals have an open door, that they can go in and talk to somebody. And that's this is why mentorship is so important. And women tend to want female mentors to have those kinds of conversations. And the more women we lose out of tech, the less mentorship there is. And so it's a spiraling problem. Uh, And I hope that we can somehow figure out how to create better mentoring programs for young women coming in so that if they do go off and have a family and they are starting to feel really overwhelmed, they have somebody to come talk to about it to look for solutions other than them just stepping out out of work.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of the idea behind the talks I give and the workshops I give on flame-proof and burnout. I will say really quickly, because I know you're going to want to have something for your audience that they can do w- with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tagline to being flame-proof, you know, flame-proof your career and your life and handle adversity like a boss. The key is in the tagline. So the idea that we will not have adversity is unrealistic. And the question then is, this the science shows that the quality of our life is determined to a large degree by the quality of our emotions. And when I, so if I have a really rough week and I dwell on the coulda, shoulda, woulda, or what did that person do to me? Or if I embody my full victimhood or any of that kind of jazz, I am choosing a certain set of emotions. I might have resentment. I might have anger. I might have you name it, right? None of those are helpful. So in handling adversity, like a boss is not to say that everything's going to be rosy, but when I can reframe a situation that says I am in control of this. I do have at least two choices. I, um, I am also allowed to make those choices. And I also know how to find the people around me who can advise me, to your point, right, who are going to come to my aid and, and be here, have my back, talk to me about what it is that I need, you know, what Help me evaluate what it is that I need to do if I'm not able to do that on my own um for for whatever reason in the moment but the 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 way that we choose the way that we choose to handle adversity like a boss what is be what does that mean for a person does boss mean brave does boss mean bold does it mean self respect does it mean you know What what does that embody? So pick the B-O-S-S and pick your leadership traits that are the ones that you want to embody and and make them the positive ones, (laughs) right? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Because that's where, look, I can roll with almost anything. Almost, almost anything. At work, for sure, anything. My personal life, almost everything. And, and that is how I choose to embody those emotions on a day-to-day basis that help me um, deal with whatever comes. So that's, that's my encouragement. I mean, it is every, you always have at least two choices and your emotions are a choice.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What a great place. We got it. We're almost out of time here, but what a great place to end the conversation. Karen, thank you so much. Um, This was great. It was really great to chat with you. And um, what a great conversation. I know our audience is really going to enjoy watching this. Um, Everybody, thanks. Thank Karen. Thank Tracy. And um, stick with Tech Strong TV. There's a lot more great shows coming up for you guys to watch today. And we'll see you on our next episode of Tech Strong Women. Thanks. Thank you so Thank much. You. For